Though Jesus was born in Bethlehem and taken to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod, he spent his childhood and young adult years in a small town up north in Galilee. Nazareth was an out-of-the-way place, far from the center of Jewish life in cosmopolitan Judea. Have you ever wondered about Jesus' early years in Nazareth? What was his home life like? Who were the people that he loved and who loved him back? Well, that's what we'll explore today on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I'm Steve Schwetz, and in just a minute, the Bible bus will get going and we'll get unusual insight into Jesus' early years as seen prophetically in the book of Psalms. Yeah, Psalms. So grab your Bible and find your seat, and while you do that, let's hear a couple of letters from our fellow passengers. This first one is a letter Dr. McGee received several years ago, so let's listen to him share it again. Well, let me share with you the little poem that a listener sent to me. The title of this is School Prayers, and there's no author of it given here, but I'll pass it on to you. It says, Now I sit me down in school, where praying is against the rule, for this great nation under God finds public mention of him odd. Any prayer a class recites violates the Bill of Rights, any time my head I bow becomes a federal matter now. Teach us of stars or pole and equator. Make no mention of their creator. Tell of experts in Denmark or Sweden, but not a word of what Eve did in Eden. The law is specific. The law is precise. Praying out loud is no longer nice. Praying aloud in a public hall upsets believers of nothing at all. In silence alone can we meditate. And if God should get the credit, great. This rule, however, has a gimmick in it. You've got to be finished in less than a minute. So all I ask is a minute of quiet. If I feel like praying, then maybe I'll try. If not, O oh Lord, this plea I make, should I die in school, my soul you'll take. That's a very good poem appropriate for the present hour. Next is an encouraging email that we get from a listener named Nancy. I loved the World Prayer Team email about Monaco, Nancy says. So specific, so believing, so encouraging. Yes, intercession changes hearts. We don't have the will to believe him or care for others without the power of his spirit. Jesus says, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but all things are possible with God. Yes, we can all believe for at least one soul. Monaco is loved by God. Lord, send someone with the news of salvation in Jesus Christ. I so appreciate this ministry. Praying around the world is the best way to reach the world. Well, thanks, Nancy. Thanks for cheering us all on. And, you know, more importantly, thank you for joining with our world prayer team as we pray for God's whole word to reach the whole world. You know, you can join Nancy, me, and thousands of other Through the Bible listeners as we travel the world, figuratively speaking, on our knees, joining our world prayer team. It's really easy. You can sign up today at ttb.org forward slash pray. Now, bow your head with me if you can. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word. We ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us with wisdom so that we can understand your truth in a new and life-changing way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's our study in Psalms 69-72 through 72 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. 
Our study today brings us to this 69th Psalm, and this 69th Psalm is a great messianic psalm. I think it's one of the greatest. I was drawn to it when I was a student in college. And from that day to this, it's been a favorite psalm of mine. So you will forgive me today if I hang around it a little longer than we stay around some others. But it has a meaning that we need to get. And the New Testament pays attention to it. It is quoted in the New Testament more than any other psalm, with the exception, of course, the 22nd Psalm is number one in the hit parade in the New Testament, and Psalm 69 is number two on the hit parade. It's quoted, for instance, several times in the Gospel of John, several times in the Epistle to the Romans, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in the book of Acts. And very candidly, I think there are many references to it without actual quotation at all. It's called an imprecatory psalm because from verses 22 through 28, we have what is known as an imprecatory prayer. And yet, we have several quotations, about a half a dozen in that section where it's quoted in the New Testament. Now, let's get into this psalm because... To me, it's one of the most wonderful psalms that I know anything at all. Now, this psalm, as we have put in our notes, and I give this to those that do not have our notes so you can see what you're missing, because we have here the silent years in the life of Christ. In the Gospels, from the time he was born, practically, there are one or two references. Dr. Luke gives a reference when he's 12 years of age. But we do not hear from him until he's 30 years of age. And what about that period? Well, this psalm fills that in. And it tells the life of Christ. Now, Psalm 22 dwells on the death of Christ. Psalm 69 dwells on the life of Christ. And you have those dark days in Nazareth and the dark hours on the cross. Then there's this imprecatory section which actually is a cry for justice. Now, shall we listen to it? Because it is the psalm of his humiliation and rejection. Listen as it opens on really a rather doleful note. And it's a lily psalm, because he's the lily of the vat, as well as the rose of Sharon. And he's altogether lovely. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. You notice how he suffered. Actually, the physical suffering was bad enough. But I think that the suffering of Christ in this life was almost unbearable. I'm confident that multitudes of us would have ended our life if we had gone through what he did down here. And none of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, how hard dark was the night the Lord passed through, ere he found his sheep that was lost. Now, that's when he's on the cross. And it's only those last three hours on the cross, actually, in which that cross became an altar in which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered, for it was then he was made sin for us. But he suffered before, but there is actually no salutary or saving value in those suffering, other than 
He took the place of humiliation. And this is something that he took voluntarily. The limitation of Christ as a human being was a self-limitation. I'd like to know more than I know. I'd like to expand. We hear today so much about expanding your mind. I'd like to expand mine, but not the method that's being used. But the Lord Jesus, he came down contracted. He became a man. He humbled himself. And we have that. Now, in that state, he cries out. He says, I sink in deep mire where there's no standing. I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. Now, this were the floods of suffering. We started that way, born yonder in a stable, actually, which was apparently part of the inn. And I'm not sure but what the stable part was as good as the other part in that day. And the other part was all public. At least he had a place where no one could see what took place except the cows and the oxen and the sheep. And they were better than that leering crowd that was in the inn that filled it. Now, what he's saying here is this. He began in suffering, and now we go to Nazareth, where he was brought up, we're told. Verse 3, I'm weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. My friend, those 30 years were times when his eyes were red with weeping. Why? Verse 4, and he quoted this, They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. Have you ever noticed that this is one that is quoted in the Gospel of John, John 15, verse 25? And he's the one who quoted it, applied it to himself. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Now, they hated him without a cause. They had no justification for it. And we are told today that we are justified. And actually, we're saved today on the basis of fact that we're told that it's done freely. We have that translation in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus and the word is the same as they hated me without a cause. And here it should be being justified without a cause. That is, he didn't find anything in me that would say, oh boy, that fellow McGee down there, he's such a nice fellow, I'll justify him. There's nothing like that. He says he's a poor lost sinner and there was no cause within me. Now they hated him without a cause that I might be justified without a cause. What a wonderful truth there is here. Now, will you notice verse 5? O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from thee. Now, somebody says, well, how in the world can that apply to him? You must remember, he not only came down here to take the place of a human being, but he came down here, though holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, there in those last few hours on the cross, he's made sin for us. And that's the thing that he was resisting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass. What cup? Well, that cup of sin, my cup, a cup of iniquity the prophets talked about that's filling up. And he took that, and that was awful for him. comes natural for us, that song 
doing what comes naturally. Well, for us, it's sin, but for him, it wasn't, you see. And that's the thing that makes this suffering here so terrible. Verse 6, let not them who wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those who seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Now, let me move on. Because for thy sake, I have borne reproach. You see, two reasons that he's bearing this. One reason is because of who he was, they hated him. Same reason that the sinner hates the righteous person today. The one thing that as a sinner you resist, it's that. And then the other reason is because of the fact that he's come to take that place, that low, humble place. Now, here we have something that to me is quite wonderful. Verse 8, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Now, that tells me a whole lot that I wouldn't know otherwise. Mary had other children. That confirms what the Gospels say. And not only that, but we find out something else, that these other children treated him as a stranger. Why? Well, because they picked it up that Joseph was not his father. Joseph was their father, but not his. And they hated him for it. And he says here, I'm become a stranger unto my brethren. Do you think that was a happy home in which he was raised? It was a very unhappy home. Oh, these lovely pictures you have of the home in Nazareth. I have a picture like that. The home in Nazareth. Oh, it's so nice and lovely. Ideal home. It was anything but an ideal home, my friend, that he was raised in. Now he was a stranger to my brethren. They were half-brothers and an alien under my mother's children. And this is the virgin birth. Didn't say his father's children, his mother's children. Now will you notice, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now, this is a verse, you remember, he quoted also in reference to the temple there. My, they were religious and business termites and doing just about the same amount of damage there in the temple. Oh, they were busy, but far from God. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, verse 10, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. When he would fast or weep, they would ridicule him for it, say, you're just putting on. Then he says something else here. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. You know what the proverb was? He was illegitimate. That was the word they circulated around. You know, the liberal today, the modernist, isn't the one that thought of the fact that he was an illegitimate son. And you know what they would call him. Because notice what happened, verse 12. Here's what happened in not only the home in Nazareth, but in the little town of Nazareth. Verse 12. They that sit in the gate speak against me. Those were the leaders in the town. And I was the song of the drunkard. The establishment made fun of him. And the drunkards down at the bar, they made up dirty little ditties about him and his mother. And I say to you, friends, this is life in Nazareth. Wasn't so nice up there. And you know why? He took that place 
being raised in a town where they said he was illegitimate in order that I might be a legitimate son of God. And nobody in heaven going to point their finger at Vernon McGee and say that you're not God's son. You know why? Because he down here bore that place for me on a cross and paid the penalty for my sin. My, this is a wonderful psalm. Now I must move along here. Verse 13, let me read that. But as for me, my prayers unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. And there's a reference to that, by the way, in Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter, verse two. Now, this is again a very wonderful psalm. And I move on now to the imprecatory part of it. Verse 22, let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Now, that's quoted, as you well know, in Romans. And it's quoted in reference to the loss. And since it's in the New Testament, I see nothing unchristian about it. I'm afraid these imprecatory prayers have been greatly misunderstood. When you put them back in the position that they should be put in. This is a judgment that he's pronouncing upon the lost. He says here, verse 25, Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. That is quoted, you'll remember, by Peter in the book of Acts. And then I move on in verse 26, For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Now, I have a suggestion to make here. When the Lord said something about blotting out the name out of the book of life. Now, that was a warning. He didn't do it. And the question arises, would he ever have done it? The suggestion that I have made... It's not original with me at all. It's one of the many explanations for that passage. And the suggestion is here, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And when you're born, you're putting God's book of the living. And I take it that you're made a candidate for salvation. And I think when you're blotted out, that you've crossed over the line and you're no longer a candidate for salvation. And he says, and not be written with the righteous. I would think that that would be the reasonable explanation of this. Now, this psalm closes with, oh, what a glorious song of praise. I will praise the name of God with a song. will magnify him with thanksgiving. Verse 30. You see, he came in humiliation. He's coming back in exaltation. And the only ones that'll be in heaven are the redeemed. Now, friends, there are just two kinds of people in the world today. Lost people, saved people, redeemed sinners, and unredeemed sinners. You can distinguish very easily which one you're in. And then always you have this God's poverty program, verse 33. For the Lord heareth the poor, and he despiseth not his prison. God is going to bring justice to this earth someday. Won't be here till he gets here. Now, when we come to Psalm 70, this is a psalm of David, and it's a brief little lovely thing. And actually, you will find it in the last part, the last five verses of Psalm 40. 
And one of the critics says, a fragment accidentally here inserted. Well, I'll agree with the critic if you'll take out the word accidentally. And it's called a psalm of remembrance. Why is it put here again? Because my memory is not very good. And God knew that. Now, maybe yours is a good memory. So God repeated it. He said, by the time you get here, McGee, you'll have forgotten all about Psalm 45. But here's some things to remember. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. I like that. And then verse 5, but I'm poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God. Thou art my help, my deliverer. O Lord, make no tarry. And he just wants me to know he's my helper. He wants me to know that he's for the poor and needy. And I come in that class and that he's going to be my deliverer and my helper. And he's that today. Now you have Psalm 71 here. That's an elegy. It's a prayer. It's called a prayer for old age because two verses here speak of that. Verse 9, cast me not off in the time of old age, forsake me not when my strength faileth. And this, by the way, is a good psalm for us senior citizens. I have found that this psalm means a little bit more to me today than it did 20 years ago. Verse 18 again. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not until I've shown thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Now, let me say this to senior citizens right now. Friends, don't go into the corner and sit in a rocking chair. God hasn't forsaken you. And right down to your dying days, kept you here for a purpose. And I'm praying God. I said, Lord, don't let me sit down in a rocking chair permanently, but be sure and give me a rocking chair. I love to sit in one. Many of my friends, where I go, there's certain homes I visit, actually across this country, and certain conferences, they have a chair there. It's a rocking chair with my name on it. And I appreciate that, by the way. They always drag out the rocking chair. Well, I love a rocking chair, but I don't want to stay there all the time. I want to be active right on through. And that's the thing I've asked God to let me do. This is a wonderful psalm. Now we come to what is called a psalm for Solomon. And I like the way the New Schofield Bible has put it like that. The critic has said Solomon wrote this psalm. I don't think that Solomon wrote the psalm at all, although it may sound like him. But after all, he's the son of David. And this is David's psalm. Somebody says, how do you know? It concludes with verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, this is a psalm that concludes this second section, which is the Exodus section. And in the conclusion of the Exodus section, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And this is a psalm when the God of righteousness, and as you go through this, you'll notice how many times righteousness at the beginning. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and justice. And that is the plank in the platform that no candidate has ever had as far as I can tell. But the Lord Jesus has that in his platform. He's going to reign someday. And when he does, David says, my prayers are all ended. I'm through praying. It's all been realized. David also said, back in 2 Samuel, you remember? He said that this is my salvation. When? God will put my son on the throne down here. Now, that's what this psalm is all about. I'll not go into detail. We'll begin the third section next time. May God richly bless you, my beloved.
How glorious is the righteousness of God. How wonderful are the Psalms that tell us about him. If you're enjoying this study, why don't you invite a friend to hop aboard and join us? All of these messages and Psalms are available to listen to for free at ttb.org forward slash Psalms or to get the entire five-year series, check out our Bible bus flash drive that's available at ttb.org or by calling 1-800-65-BIBLE. And for more great teaching by Dr. McGee this weekend, join me for his Sunday sermon from Psalm 119 titled Faith and Freedom and the Foundation. Listen online, find info on our app, or see if your station carries the Sunday Sermon all at ttb.org. And as always, we welcome your letters and emails. If you've got a story to tell us, here's how to get in touch. Email us at biblebus at ttb.org. You can always write to us at Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109, or in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or share your story on our Facebook page. I'm Steve Schwetz, and as always, I'll be here next time, saving a seat on the Bible bus just for you. Well, ride the Bible bus for five years and you'll be amazed at what God teaches you from his word about what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a blessing that keeps on going. That's what we believe at Through the Bible.